to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to Kathleen Powell, curator of the St. Catharines Museum and supervisor of historical services. Adrian Petrie, visitor services coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, public programmer here at the museum. And we're kicking off our Winter 2017 Books and Brews with a chat about the first book in the series, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Yay! Woo! Applause track. Applause track. This is the applause track. Some of you may be wondering what Books and Brews is. Well, Books and Brews was started last year. This is our, so we're going into our second sort of little triad of books. Um, and Books and Brews is a way for people to explore the museum, our local history, and great literature um, all at the same time while also enjoying a brew of some kind. Um, it also was a big part of our Open Late program that we started a couple of years ago and have expanded to include lots of different types of things. Open Late runs on Tuesdays from uh, Victoria Day all the way to Thanksgiving, and we're open until 8 p.m. to the public. So it's a really great way to get a new audience in. It's a really great way to be more accessible to more people and uh, just to expand our offerings and and meet some new people and, and get people into the museum for a different reason other than just you know seeing an exhibit or participating in a program. It's sort of a, a new way to engage with the museum mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. So our Books and Brews podcast uh, goes along with our Museum Chat Live podcast. These are special <laughs> Books and Brews episodes, um, and they're designed for our book club members. So if you're not a book club member and you've been listening, tisk tisk. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you, can get, uh, you can get your copy of the book, and you can join us for Books and Brews. Uh, here at the museum in our museum's gift shop, the Merritt's Mercantile. Um, And if you just want to listen, that's cool too, but we're going to be talking mostly about the book for the next three episodes. Awesome. So, for February, we're reading Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. It tells the story of a young escaped slave named Cora tracing her journey to freedom through the Underground Railroad. But here's the kicker in this novel, <laughs> The Underground alert. Railroad. Yeah, spoiler. Spoiler. It actually, quite literally, is a train that runs through tunnels underground. An early subway system, if you will, but with a little bit of steam and a lot of soot. Historians are currently like shaking their heads and rolling in their graves about yes. this, this yes. Uh, oh, literary yes. imagery, I guess we could say. Literary license might be a point of contention for us. Perhaps. We'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we follow Cora as she escapes from Georgia to South Carolina, to North Carolina, to Tennessee, to Indiana, and beyond. And let me tell you, this is not a happy story. Cora's story is tense, it's uncomfortable, and it's dark. And that's why I think it's such an important novel to read. Sometimes the myths and stories that tend to surround the history tell of the Underground Railroad also tend to be romantic and they tend to fictionalize it sometimes. 
But no, slaves' escape to freedom was difficult and it was grueling, and this is a story that is told with Cora. I think it's interesting that this story chose to use the Underground Railroad as very literal uh, and kind of take that what we would have a hard time envisioning and try to make it into this this kind of mythological underground actual underground train um, because there's so many different myths in history that we've used over the years uh, to try to uh, I don't know make a story either more exciting or easier to digest yeah. I think mm. most of the time that's what it is is you're trying to make an, a story either easier to believe easier to digest or to make it more comfortable for yourself as the person mm -hmm. hearing the story. Mm -hmm. But I like what Sarah just said, which is that it makes you uncomfortable. And history should make you uncomfortable. There are lots of things in history that weren't pleasant and people shouldn't shy away from that because if you do, then you forget the stuff mm -hmm. that's the meat of history, really. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like what you were saying about make, trying to make history excitable so that it's more like, more uh, like fun to like read about or whatever but I was thinking about it this morning and it's like historians have taken the Underground Railroad and made it into almost a Braveheart type mm -hmm. of story mm -hmm. like made up stuff to make it really exciting and like you know there's bits and pieces about Harriet Tubman's story that's totally true right like she carried a revolver like that's kind of exciting stuff but the main history of the Underground Railroad is more like a Downton Abbey excitement level <laughs> where like Edith is helping slaves like that's mm -hmm. that's not in Downton Abbey but that's like the level of excitement that we're talking about mm -hmm. and a lot of these myths sort of raise it to this like Braveheart level and we all mm -hmm. know how Braveheart was so so accurate that's <laughs> fiction we're all shaking our heads right now. <laughs> so so we're going to talk about in the podcast a bit about the myths of the Underground Railroad um, basically because of this whole train thing in the story. Now, uh, just to kind of put a caveat at the beginning of this discussion, we know that this story is fiction. We're not <laughs> taking Colson Whitehead's novel and using it as uh, the unvarnished history of the Underground Railroad. So we do understand that. Um, but I think the biggest challenge with myths being out there is that there will be people who will think this is real history and we'll make that into real mm -hmm. history. It's happened mm -hmm. in the past, and uh, um, but there is value to it, and I'm sure in our book club discussion we'll talk a lot about it, but right now we're gonna talk a little bit of some of the other myths of the Underground Railroad that people have heard uh, over the years. Um, but let's start with um, talking about how the Underground Railroad connects to St. Catharines and to the history here in the city. Yeah, so, well, yeah. yeah. Do you wanna? I could start. Yeah, go for, like, go, for you can fill in. Yeah, go for it, go for it. So, <laughs> Just for those who uh, are not completely familiar with the Underground Railroad and who haven't read the book yet, uh, essentially the Underground Railroad is um, a series of connections between safe houses from the southern United States that slaves who were escaping to freedom in the northern United States or Canada would follow uh, to get uh, out of the, the situation that they're in. And St. Catharines was basically the end of that um, railroad or metaphorical railroad, metaphorical, so to speak. yeah. Although, like, people did settle all the way up into Owen Sound and around the lake into Toronto and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, St. Catharines, Niagara was a major terminus, right? We call it, or that's what we that's sort of our museum speak major terminus <laughs> of the Underground Railroad. 
Right. So St. Catharines, people, a lot of people would think, well, why isn't Niagara Falls the end of the Underground Railroad? Because it's the first city you get to when you cross the border at this part of Niagara, or uh, Fort Erie would be another example, or potentially Niagara-on-the-Lake, depending on where you cross the river. Why aren't those the terminus of the Underground Railroad? Mm -hmm. uh, but if you think about it, at the time, there were still people who were being paid to catch escaped slaves, and some of them even came into Canada. So if you're smart, you're not going to stay super close to the border. You're going to move away a bit and St. Catharines was a great community to move to because there was a, um, a core group of uh, African Canadians who were living here who were kind of the support system of those people who came here and would help them to uh, establish uh, a life, hopefully find work, some place to live, uh, clothing and uh, shelter for their families. In Benjamin Drew's work, Benjamin Drew was a white abolitionist from the northern United States and uh, he came to Canada to St. Catharines and Toronto and Chatham and some of the other places that escaped slaves were settling to interview escaped slaves. And um, he noted that St. Catharines was special in that series of cities because uh, the Welland Canal had afforded the city so much manufacturing affluence. And so the ability of the community to look after these people was perhaps greater at a per capita level than some other communities. So if you look at that at a Niagara level, um, St. Catharines was such a manufacturing hub that we definitely had at least some jobs and uh, some affluence to be able to support that. And that's why I think like a Downton Abbey level of excitement for the Underground Railroad is pretty much what we're talking about because it was usually, not all, but some, most abolition, abolitionists were white middle to upper class people who were, you know, advocating on behalf of these uh, refugee slaves. So that's the that's exactly the type of community St. Catharines was. Lots of affluent um, manufacturing folk in and around the city. Right. Speaking of, um, the, some of these people also put together the Friends of the Refugee Slave Society, which was led by our first mayor, Elias Smith-Adams. And um, local uh, St. Catharines people will know that uh, William Hamilton Merritt was also uh, a member, and they sort of pooled resources uh, to find land and, and money to donate to um, some of these escaped slaves. And Harriet Tubman was also said to be an honorary member, though I don't know how many meetings she would have attended, but they, she, they made her an honorary member. Um, so kind of, kind of neat that we have a, a long yeah. history of, of refugee settlement in this community. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. totally agreed. Um, I think that was a good segue, though, Adrian, for you to uh, just uh, give a little quick um, talk about uh, probably our most famous um, yeah. Underground Railroad-related uh, person from the history of St. Catharines, Harriet Tubman. Yeah, Harriet Tubman is a pretty neat figure. A lot of people refer to her as the Black Moses because she would go back and forth between St. Catharines and the United States and help escaping slaves come to Canada. And I don't know if there's an official number, um, but it's in the hundreds of slaves that she helped uh, find their way, basically. Yeah, and she used St. Catharines as her sort of Canadian base. So it's kind of neat. But um, a lot of, there's a lot of myths that go along with that. And a big one is music of the Underground Railroad. And uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot was said to be Harriet Tubman's favorite song. Along with Steal Away, most of the music and African-American spirituals associated with the Underground Railroad 
were not composed during the time of the Underground Railroad as messages and means of communication, uh, which is, you know, mostly what the myths refer to, but they were composed afterwards as celebrations of freedom and remembrances of those who were lost in bondage. The problem with these myths, of course, is that they are so popular and so they're really hard to uh, get rid of. Um, using music as a device to communicate direction or danger is really exciting imagery for historians. It's also awesome when you're making a movie. It makes it really awesome really to great. add that into the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there isn't much historical evidence to support it. And when examined, most songs associated with the Underground Railroad were actually composed well after, as I mentioned earlier, in recognition for the struggle and the achievements of escaped slaves and abolitionists. Frederick Douglass, newly famous Frederick Douglass, a former <laughs> slave, a former slave and abolitionist who was heavily involved in the Underground Railroad, uh, includes a note about music in his autobiography, but the tune "Oh Canaan, My Sweet Canaan" was used more to help morale than to provide direction to Canada. There's an exception to all of this, and that's the tune "Go Down Moses," and this is the only piece of historical evidence that we have. Uh, Sarah Bradford, who's the author who wrote about Harriet Tubman in the 1869 book Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, wrote, After nightfall, the sound of a hymn sung at a distance comes upon the ears of the concealed and famished fugitives in the woods, and they know that their deliverer is at hand. They listen eagerly for the words she sings, for by them they are to be warned of danger or informed of safety. Nearer and nearer comes the unseen singer, and the words are wafted to their ears. While there may be an example of Harriet Tubman using music as a way to communicate her presence to those she was hiding, or whether it was safe to come out of hiding, there's no historical evidence to support so many famous African-American spirituals were composed to convey coded messages specifically to provide direction to escaped slaves on the Underground Railroad. But there's lots of other myths that we can talk about, <laughs> including... I think that one of the most interesting myths and one that you really want to have believed to be true is this idea that uh, people would make quilts with hidden messages in the, uh, the shapes of the uh, pieces of fabric that are quilted together and then hang them from their uh, front porch or from their front window. Or on the clothesline yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Or with a lantern to basically be a big huge signpost to tell uh, escaped slaves which way to go. I think that's such an interesting myth and it's I don't know really where the uh, the origin of this myth comes from, but obviously uh, quilt makers looking for patterns. This is a great uh, pattern making idea, <laughs> but because the Underground Railroad was supposed to be secret, uh, it doesn't really seem to follow that it would be very accurate that they would hang them out yeah. in plain sight for all slave catchers and everyone else to see. Mm -hmm. I think it was pretty clear that uh, the people that were trying to c catch escaped slaves were pretty savvy in the uh, um, the nuances of the Underground Railroad in some ways, and so they were actively searching out um, potential means to pass messages, and this one would seem pretty obvious to me. I think it's a really mm -hmm. nice story, but you're right, there's no historical evidence to support it so that that's our that's a real problem right like it might have been a real thing but there's no historical evidence to support it and so we can't as historians we can't go around perpetuating that myth 
The other issue is the train issue, which we briefly talked about at the top of the podcast, in that, spoiler alert, there is a real train in the fictional story uh, of the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. And we'll talk more about this in our book club discussion about why he used a real train. But this is one of our biggest issues with school kids, and actually any audience member who has heard anything about the Underground Railroad, um, but not the whole story, that people really think that it was actually a real underground train or a subway that would bring people, uh, bring refugee slaves to Canada. Refugee slaves walked and then sometimes took um, coaches, uh, stagecoaches, or, um, and then eventually might take a boat across Lake Erie or across the river or across Lake Ontario, um, depending on where they were going. So they, they wouldn't have taken a train. So uh, there's no train. And so this is one of the issues that we deal with on a regular basis when we're giving school tours here at the museum um, and even talking about some of the other myths that have been perpetuated around the city, uh, including... Um, I have to say the underground part of the whole thing annoys me as well. It's not just the train, it's the tunnels. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times people have told me that they came from a community that they heard there were tunnels where the escaped slaves used to go. There are very few of those out there. Yeah, um, very, very few. And there's little evidence that there were that many tunnels in different places. And so this just adds to, it, even without the train, the the underground part mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, is always, people are still trying to perpetuate those myths over and over again. There are still some websites that uh, cite underground tunnels between William Hamilton Merritt's house, which is still standing. It's the CKTB radio station otherwise known as Oak Hill to us historians. Um, uh, these underground tunnels going to the coach house were used to hide refugee slaves. But we know that instead of hiding them, people like Merritt and other abolitionists in the city, whether on the committee or not, um, helped these people actually settle in different parts of the city. They weren't hiding them in their basement. When they so. got, by the time they were here in St. Catharines, they were already free. They That's didn't right. need to hide any longer. Yeah. They didn't need tunnels here in St. Catharines for that. The border was supposed to protect them from bounty hunting. Um, so yeah, they weren't, they didn't really need to be... Smuggled. Smuggled and continually smuggled and spend, you know, five, six years in Merritt's basement. Like, it's not... Continuing <laughs> to happen. So, but there's still websites out there that say that and people, you know, still see that information here and there and then get spread around and every so often we get questions about it and we often have to put out that myth. It's sort of like playing whack-a-mole almost. They kind of pop up It just goes back go. to what we said at the start, which is people like to make, add excitement to... Uh, history to either make it more exciting or more digestible Mm -hmm. absolutely great wrap up of the discussion (laughs) Kathy so and now it's time to give you some homework homework what I didn't agree to homework so folks in Roosevelt is it it homework for me it's homework for yes for all of us to think about especially participants books and brews I want to think about a couple things I want to think about of course, since we've talked so much about it <laughs> today. What do you think about Whitehead's depiction of the Underground Railroad as an actual underground railroad? Why? Why did he do this? What do you think this actually adds to the story? Does it add anything to the story? And what's is there like a certain meaning behind this? 
this is still something that I'm struggling with, is maybe is there a hidden meaning to why he made it an underground railroad? So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and also to kind of expand our discussion a little bit, the characters, Cora in the book, comes in contact with a lot of different characters. There's Caesar, there's Ridgeway, but also Martin and Homer and the Hob Woman. Who stands out to you? And who do you wish you learned more about? Because I know there was a couple people that I wish that I got to learn a little bit more about their story and what happened to them. And also, the storytelling in the novel is a bit different. The narrative isn't always linear, it goes back, it goes forth. Sometimes there's a chapter where it will start right in the middle of a story or it will start at the end of a story. And it switches between characters almost randomly sometimes. So I also wanna know what do you guys think about Whitehead's storytelling and what that adds to the book as well. So homework, things to keep in mind for our discussion on the 21st. As homework goes, that's pretty good homework. Thank you, I think I signed it fairly. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast, everyone. Make sure to tune in next time when we'll be joined by a very special guest, Professor Carmela Petrias from Brock University, to discuss immigrant labor in St. Catharines as we prepare for our March selection, In the Skin of a Lion by Michael Andache. It's not too late to join in the discussion. If you'd like to join our Books and Brews book club, make sure to check out our website, stcatharinesmuseum.ca, for all the information you need to register. The book club is a really neat way to explore some great literature and local history in your own community. Special thanks to our Books and Brews presenting partner, Mate Cafe and Lounge. For more information on our Museum Chat Live podcast, please follow us on our blog at stcatharinesmuseumblog.com. And make sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms, including Facebook, facebook.com slash stcatharinesmuseum, and Twitter and Instagram at stcmuseum, and on our big WordPress blog at WordPress, stcatharinesmuseumblog.com. This episode was produced by Adrian Petrie, Sarah Nixon, and Kathleen Powell. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the City of St. Catharines.